0: Tremendous.
1: You know, uh, oddly enough, I feel like I can really relate to that song, um, because it's it's Mother's Day, and it's a day to celebrate the joyous miracle of motherhood, and I was all ready and set to preach a, you know, lighthearted and cheerful sermon before you all go out to enjoy brunch today. But then I felt a calling that I wanted to ignore very badly. I felt, with everything that's been happening this past week in regards to the leaked plans of the Supreme Court, I felt compelled, uh, somewhat against my will, <laughs> to speak to this issue today. And much like Jonah, I ran from it. I said to myself, there's no way that I can talk about this on Mother's Day. There's just, I can't do it. I can't I won't and I was swallowed up by a whale of doubt and spent three days and three nights give or take wrestling uh, with this question and the more I thought and the more I prayed the more I realized that I had a responsibility to acknowledge the elephant in the room and if not now then when confirmation Sunday next week somehow that seemed even worse But I do feel like I have a responsibility when I know that people in my congregation are hurting and confused to speak to what is hurting them. And so here I stand, a man, trying to wrap my arms around women's reproductive rights on Mother's Day. I do so humbly, very humbly, but with the confidence afforded by the gospel and its good news. And in this case, we have Jesus, Defending a woman who's being attacked by the state for private matters. Of course, nothing is that simple. And beneath this story, there's a broader message that applies to folks on both sides of this contentious issue, namely the matter of judgment in what is or is not ours to judge. Because you know what they say about people who live in houses made of glass?
0: A reading from the Gospel of John. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so they might have have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground when they heard it they went away one by one beginning with the elders and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him Jesus straightened up and said to her woman where are they Has no one condemned you she said no one sir and Jesus said neither do I condemn you go your way and from now on, do not sin again. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please
1: pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping, always, with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I often think about the first house that I grew up in, my first home. Spending my earliest years there, it's achieved an almost mythic status in my memory, a place I often visit in my dreams, one that's synonymous with the yellow-tinted nostalgia of childhood and a consciousness that's still forming. I can recall certain rooms vividly, Other spaces are dimmer like something I must have imagined, their contours vague, their details long forgotten. The kitchen is a mysterious labyrinth of cupboards and cabinets and yellowish linoleum floors. My crib is soft, and the mechanical lullaby of the spring-wound teddy bear by my side lulls me to sleep. And even now, if I close my eyes, I can almost see the patterns on the wallpaper in my bedroom. How many nights did I stare at them by the glow of a nightlight's bulb, unable to sleep, tracing them over and over again with my eyes? Above all, though, what I remember most clearly is a mother's love for her sons. My mom doted on us. She was always warm and affectionate, and she prized a good education above all else. I can still remember the little flashcards that she taped up all over the house when I was first learning how to read. Doors and tables and just about everything you can imagine labeled with large, friendly letters that spelled out the appropriate words. Door. Chair. Bed. She wanted us to learn to think critically, to never blindly accept what we were told, and to consider things from all sides. In that regard, her decision to send my brother and I to a private Catholic school may have been ill-advised. That place was like something out of a Kafka novel, quite frankly, but she meant well, and she believed that we'd get a better education there than in a public school. College was not even up for discussion. We were going, and that was that. And she always dreamed that I'd one day go to Yale, hoping that I'd grow up to be a doctor. Well, I went to Yale and became a preacher instead, but she was no less proud of me for it. I was lucky and blessed. From the day I was born, whatever hate I might have gotten from anyone else, I always knew that at home, I was loved. I know this isn't everyone's experience. I know that some mothers don't have the same capacity for love, having never received it themselves. Others develop it in spite of their own upbringing. Everyone's circumstances are different. Naturally, as I got older, my mother and I didn't always see eye to eye. We argued about everything from my haircut to my clothes to where I was gonna go to college, just like most parents and their children do at one time or another. It was all more or less typical stuff, uh, just part of growing up, you know. But after a couple of divorces, when that house I grew up in was sold and gone forever, I found myself judging my mother for decisions that she'd made that I didn't agree with. And sometimes I may have judged her too harshly. Everyone's circumstances are different. And I couldn't know what my mother might have been going through at any given stage of her life. That's a lesson that I learned the hard way over time. You can walk a mile in someone else's shoes, but you'll never know what it feels like to live their life, to inherit their memories, or to inhabit their body. I suppose that's why our old Vovo was adorned with a bumper sticker that read, Keep your laws off my body. I didn't know what that meant as a small child, but I know what it means now. As you can imagine, my mother is pretty upset right now. I know that a lot of folks are upset right now, and I know that that's an understatement. The leaked draft from the Supreme Court about overturning Roe v. Wade has sparked national outrage and celebration these past few days depending on how you feel about it it's an extremely controversial subject one that i've never addressed from this pulpit before because it's exceptionally complex and emotionally charged and frankly i didn't talk about it because i didn't want to talk about it and i didn't want to talk about it because it's something that i struggle with you know there's enough going on in the world that i didn't feel like i had to make this my issue or Our issue as a church and that much hasn't changed but I don't feel like I can avoid the subject altogether anymore so bear with me as we try to discern God's will here together and know that I do so with great fear and trembling especially as a man who doesn't know what it's like to carry a life inside of me beyond my own first of all let it be said that reproductive rights are a moral issue more than a political one. All of our moral concerns have been politicized in recent years, so it's difficult to untangle that, but it remains true. Abortion and a woman's access to it is a moral question and for people of faith at least that makes it a religious question. And as a religious leader, I feel like I have a responsibility to consider these things by the light of the gospel what? Does scripture try to teach us about these hard and complex issues? Well, I have empathy for folks on both sides of the issue and everywhere in between. Pro-life advocates believe strongly that life begins at conception and that abortion is murder, plain and simple, and like most folks, they believe murder is wrong. Pro-choice Proponents, on the other hand, argue that a woman's reproductive health is her own business, and what happens inside of her own body shouldn't be dictated by the state. They believe it's immoral to force a woman to carry a child that they didn't consent to or that might even kill them, given certain circumstances. And there are folks all across the spectrum who will point out that preventing unwanted pregnancies is better than terminating them. And that we can only do that by addressing more systemic issues of education, poverty, and abuse. I think that these are all valid arguments that shouldn't be dismissed out of hand too lightly. And however much some folks might want to make this a simple binary issue, it just isn't. There's too much complexity, too much disagreement about what constitutes a human life, What stage of embryonic development gives rise to consciousness, and at what point a cluster of cells becomes a distinct entity that ought to be protected under federal law? Frankly, friends, these questions are above my pay grade. They are the purview of medical professionals and bioethics philosophers, more so than politicians or preachers. Scripture, save for a few poetic passages, doesn't really get into it. Sure, the Bible condemns murder, and the Psalms claim that God knit us together in the womb. But it also says in Ecclesiastes that the dead are better off than the living. And I quote, better than both is the one who has never been born. Look, you can twist scripture to support just about anything. But it doesn't tell us when life begins, nor does it address the more complicated scenarios of reproductive health, bodily autonomy, or unwanted pregnancies resulting from incest or assault. The Bible is not a how-to manual for life describing every possible scenario or circumstance and how to deal with it. It's a, it's a moral compass that points us generally in the right direction. But there's always need for interpretation and discernment. Now, what the gospel does address pretty specifically. And what I feel a little more confident in, uh, in saying is the matter of judgment, how we judge one another and how quick we are to do it. The Bible reminds us that no matter what neighborhood we live in, we all inhabit glass houses. And ought to remember that before we start throwing stones. I've always admired Jesus' consistency and integrity and Jesus consistently stands up for the rights of women in a patriarchal society. In the Gospel of Luke, he heals a woman on the Sabbath, even though it's against the law to do so. In Mark's account, he cares for a woman who's bleeding and couldn't find medical care. He befriends women like Mary, Martha, and Joanna, treating them as equals. He listens to what they have to say. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus stands up for this alleged adulteress who's about to be stoned to death. Now, I'm not trying to draw a direct comparison here between adultery and abortion, but I do think there are some similarities in this story. It's a tense scene. This woman's been accused of adultery, caught in the act, supposedly, and we don't know if that's true or merely an unfounded accusation, but regardless, it's a private matter that's been dragged out into the public square. Make no mistake, this is about power and who has it. Her sex life is none of their business, but they've made it their business to score political points. It's important to realize here that they have only brought this up because they're trying to make Jesus look bad. This isn't some scene that Jesus happened to stumble upon. They brought this woman to him. The Pharisees are trying to publicly humiliate him. The law of Moses commands us to stone her, they declare now what do you say teacher now while they're talking jesus bends down and he begins writing something in the sand with his finger and then he stands up and he says famously let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone and that's all it takes to disperse the angry mob and if you look more closely at the text you can understand why you see It says that Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger, but in some manuscripts, it adds that Jesus wrote on the ground the sins of each of them. Jesus inscribes each of their names and their crimes in the sand close enough for them to see, but quietly, rather than announcing them to the whole crowd. So you better believe they got out of there pretty quickly before anything was made public. I wonder what sins Jesus might scribe on the floor of this church or in the halls of Congress or in the chambers of the Supreme Court. I wonder what he might write about us. Jesus knows things that the rest of us don't. He knows these men and their stories and their sins. And the fact is, when a woman becomes pregnant, especially a stranger that I don't know, there's a lot about her story that I don't know. I don't know if she used protection. I don't know who the father was or if she was assaulted. I don't know what her doctors think or if she has a life-threatening medical condition. I don't know if this child will be born with crippling disabilities or if she has the capacity to care for it. I don't know if... Lawmakers that refuse to invest in education or health care or child care will do anything to help. I don't know if she feels guilty or depressed or scared. I don't know if the cells growing inside her have a soul or if they're conscious. I don't know what God wants her to do. And friends, I don't know if I were in her place and in her circumstances what I would do. What I do know is that whatever happens, it's between her and God. I don't think it's a judge's place to decide, and it's not my place to judge. Jesus could write a few things about me in the sand, too. I'm not in a position to judge anyone, which is good, because Jesus only asks me to love them. I often think about the house I grew up in, And I'm so grateful for my mother's love, and I'm grateful for the life she gave me and the the air that breathed God, God breathed into my lungs. Life is sacred. It's also hard and confusing and scary, and that's why none of us is perfect, not even close. Sometimes, a lot of the time, heck, most of the time, it's hard to know what's right. And that's why we get it wrong so often. I thank God for the mothers that guide us, even as they contend with their own struggles. I don't know what it's like to be a mother or a woman, but as a son and a husband and a father, I celebrate my mother and my wife knowing that it isn't easy. And that they've always done their best with what they had. And as a man, I'm inclined to think that men ought to listen to women more often. And I try to listen to women when they tell me that they don't want their bodies legislated. I know that's not a universal feeling. I know not everyone feels that way, but that's precisely why I don't think there's a universal one size fits all solution. Everyone's circumstances are different. As for the house I grew up in, I'll always have fond memories of it, but it was made of glass as all of them are because none of us, without sin may we be thankful that we are forgiven and may we find the heart to forgive each other I hope you can forgive me too if I've gotten it wrong here and I hope you can forgive me for getting into all of this on Mother's Day but then maybe there's no better time to celebrate a woman's power and agency in the life that she chooses to bring into this world A life born not out of fear, but out of love. Amen.